is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. New COVID vaccine could be the game changer the world's been looking for when it comes to poor and developing countries. Could get approval within the month. We'll get into that as uh, lifting patent protections as well for the already approved vaccines might be on the table. If your pants are a little more snug right now than a year ago, you're far from alone. Lots of people have gained weight in the pandemic. If you thought couples being stuck at home together for months would lead to more babies, well, it didn't happen. And what's Mother's Day without flowers? Well, you may soon find out, (laughs) and you can blame the pandemic. Let's start, though, with a new vaccine. Monica DeBull, senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. So, Monica, what makes this one different? Well, um, like Pfizer and Moderna, it is an mRNA vaccine. So it's it's a sophisticated vaccine that will probably suscitate the same levels of protection that we've seen with Pfizer and with Moderna against COVID. Um, However, differently from those two vaccines, this one can actually be stored at normal refrigerator temperatures. Um, So where where Pfizer and Moderna both need um, ultra cold or ultra refrigerated chains, Pfizer more than Moderna, in fact, CureVac um, does not. So it can be stored you know, at regular refrigerator temperatures or freezer temperatures without any problem for a long time. And presumably that would mean that this vaccine would be uh, able to be in a doctor's office, for example, and you wouldn't have to go to a specific facility where they have, you know, the refrigeration to keep things like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, right? Exactly. So it is a lot easier to distribute Logistically, you get you get a, you get over a, a lot of hurdles that we currently have with the distribution of Pfizer and Moderna. So here in the U.S., we're having problems getting these vaccines to locations where you know these ultra refrigerated cold chains are not available. With CureVac, you would not have that problem. So yes, you would be able to get this vaccine, particularly directly to doctor's offices and so on. Okay. Now, the patent protections, this is something we actually had um, mentioned yesterday when we were talking about India and how bad things are there. And I think, Charles, you said, why don't they just kind of open the books and say, this is how you make it so we can get them more doses? Is that what's being talked about here, that the administration kind of signaling that, hey, we're in support of this? Yeah, that's exactly what they're saying. Um, There are just a couple of thoughts here that I think are important. One is, obviously, we do want at this point, given the state of play in the rest of the world and how things are getting very bad in India and in other parts of Southeast Asia as well, um, we do want countries to have access to vaccines and the best vaccines at that. Um, However, we do have to keep in mind that some countries, A, do not have the capacity to manufacture on their own some of these vaccines because of the sophisticated technology that goes into them. So it's important to keep that in mind. And two, um, vaccines, the way we produce them is we produce them using what we call global supply chains in that the production of a vaccine actually takes place in many stages across different parts of the world. And therefore, if there is one country, for example, that is not exporting enough of a particular input that goes into a vaccine, like a chemical reagent or or something of that nature, 
um, you would still have a problem with vaccine production, regardless of the patent situation or the intellectual property rights situation. Now, the pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer, Moderna, uh, probably all the others, as you know, have been long opposed to the notion of, of letting sort of their formula for the secret sauce be available to others. I suspect that they are not pleased with the Biden administration's uh, support of doing that. Can they block it? The farm? I mean, it is their, again, their formulas. Can they simply dig their heels in and say, you know, it's our vaccines. We're not going to make them available. They could, but I think at this point, they, they, they probably perceive that this move was inevitable because if there's one thing that everybody is very conscious of is that the pandemic is not going to be under control anywhere unless it's under control everywhere. And if you have a country like India with such a dense population where the pandemic is completely out of control and that country doesn't have access to vaccines, then there's, that's a problem for everybody. Um, and that's a problem even for, for those pharmaceutical companies, because then their vaccines, you know, at some point, if the virus mutates and starts escaping the vaccine, their vaccines will be worthless. So I think that, you know, the overall view is this was an inevitable move. It was going to happen sooner or later. And they'll make do. You know, Pfizer has reported um, a very good financial statement. Um, they're <laughs> yeah. doing exceptionally well. Um, so is Moderna. So I think we're at that point we're at the point where, you know, that that is just when it has to happen. Monica DeBull, Senior Fellow, Peterson Institute for International Economics. Staying at home, stress and anxiety have had a big impact on people's weight. Americans have gained an average of one and a half pounds per month that we've been in this pandemic. Don't get discouraged, though. Dr. Winifred Constable is a weight loss specialist in Pennsylvania. She talks to KYW's Carol McKenzie about why we gain weight during stressful times and what can be done to drop those pounds. We are in unprecedented times. Our country has never been through a pandemic like this before. Really, it's been about 100 years since really my grandmother's time. And we certainly have never been quarantined like this before. And This is very much reflective of the difficult times we've been through. People respond to stress in many different ways. um, But one of the ways is relieving their stress with comforting foods, comforting drinks. And this is a very normal response to stress. And and speaking of that, I mean, that strong psychological component here, there was a, a quote I had pulled from the Obesity Medicine Association that says stress in and of itself is a known factor in weight gain and obesity. So are you talking about that psychological component? Is that what they're talking about when they say that it's a natural kind of stressor is, is a natural when it comes to gaining weight? We actually have 35 hormones in our body that trigger a particular place in the brain called the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. And one of the triggers of these hormones is stress. So stress actually is a biochemical trigger of hormones that cause us to want to eat. Because when you think about it, when you're stressed, your body needs energy. And so it triggers your brain to want to eat. So yes, stress does trigger you both psychologically and biochemically to eat. And it's a survival mechanism. But it's so hard. I mean, they feel like, well, they are true cravings, aren't they? You just crave that energy. Biochemical, correct. They are biochemical, true cravings. It's a survival mechanism. 
that the body has to survive. So when you're stressed, your body releases a hormone called a ghrelin, which goes to the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus and gives you a desire to eat. That is a biochemical reaction to stress. So how do we overcome it? I mean, if this is a survival mechanism that we are we are truly craving this energy, our, our comfort foods, if you will, how do we overcome that? Exactly. So stress is very toxic. There's no question about it. Stress is very toxic. And we have to learn to relieve stress in ways other than e- eating. And this is one of the things we often discuss in our in our program, because people deal with stress and tre- stress is the component of human existence. We have stress in our lives all the time, but we have to try to relieve stress in ways other than eating. So there are many things that we can do to relieve stress. And each one of us is individual and different in in terms of what works. So exercise, for example, is a tremendous reliever of stress. Um, Calling friends is stress relieving. Um, Listening to music is stress relieving. Getting on the computer and in Watching a Netflix movie is stress relieving, but relieving stress is hugely important because stress is very, very toxic, but it's going to be different from for each person, and it depends on what works for you. And what do we talk about in our program is relieving stress in the moment and relieving stress on a regular basis. So in the heat of the moment, if you're just feeling unbelievably stressed, you want to get yourself out of the situation, go outside, count to 10, take a deep breath look at the sky, look at the sun, and then go back in and deal with whatever your, your situation is, or take a drink of water, or sit down and close your eyes and count to 10. But then you need to relieve stress on a regular basis. And that means exercising, doing something for yourself once a week as a treat at the end of the week, getting your nails done, going and playing basketball, calling a friend, having coffee with friends. These are very important things. They're necessities of life that relieve stress. Stress relief is hugely important. It's not a luxury. It's something we all need to do on a regular basis because this promotes health and prevents weight gain. And that some, for some people is so hard that doing something for yourself, so many people are wired to do things for others, whether you're a parent and it's for your children or whether you're, you know, it's for your parents. And so sometimes for people to think about Doing something for yourself is not being a luxury, but a necessity is a is a huge mind shift. Mm -hmm. Yes. But you know what I say, Carol, to everybody and to all my patients is that when you do self-care, what I call self-care, everything else in your body, in your in your life works better. And when I say self-care, I mean, eating the correct diet, getting your exercise, drinking your water getting your sleep and relieving your stress. These are the five components that I always talk about in our program. But self-care has to be a drum roll that sits in the back of your head all the time because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anybody else. This is something that you must do. It's not a luxury. It's an absolute necessity. If you do this, not only will you be a happier person and you, you know, you're not going to gain weight, but everything else in your life will function better. And it's something we really need to focus on. It's something that I I drum into my patients over and over and over again. And you have to be thinking about all the time, self-care, self-care, self-care. Because if you don't do this, nothing else in your life is going to function well. And you're correct. It's not how we're wired to think. We're wired to think about giving to others, taking care of our jobs, taking care of our children, our homes, the broken dishwashers, the sick pets, going to the dry cleaners, getting the grocery shopping done. But 
when you have more energy and you're eating well and you're running every day or at least three times a week and sleeping well, everything else is in your life is going to fit, is going to function better. And you're going to have so much more energy and you're going to be so much happier. Remember when everyone stayed at home, there was speculation at the time that people would find certain ways to pass the time. And those certain ways would lead to, you know, a baby boom. I'm, I'm catching what you're yeah. putting out yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not the case. Birth rates in the U.S. have fallen to their lowest level since 1979. Casey Buckles, professor of economics and demographics at the University of Notre Dame. Casey, why did the boom not happen? Did people just decide, you know, I, I don't really like you? <laughs> I'm not sure that's quite it. <laughs> well, there may be a but it might bit be. Of <laughs> but, you know, you... I heard in your comments before that, you know, there was some idea early on that we might actually see a baby boom. And I think people had in mind past events where we had a snowstorm or a power outage or something temporary that did lead to a little increase in birth nine months later. But, you know, I think it very quickly became clear that that was not what we were dealing with here, that this, this was going to be a very big event and a very long lasting event. Yeah. And so, the, you know, the pandemic brought with it a recession and a lot of uncertainty, and both of those things tend to lead to lower uh, lower fertility, fewer births. And, and I was going to say, so it's this, but it's also the larger story of a, a continued kind of downward decline, right? So what does that mean? Take us past the headline that says, oh, birth rate is down again, women are having fewer kids. Um, but if this is a sustained kind of thing, what does that mean for all of us? Yes, well, you're exactly right. You know, I I think there are some beginnings, uh, of the, the beginning signs of the pandemic baby bust in these reports, uh, the one we got today. But really, this is a longer term trend. So it started in around 2007. Births are down about 20 percent since just 2007. And so we can talk about, you know, why we think that is. Um, but first, just to talk about the implications of that. You know, if, if we have fewer births and fewer young people working, um, paying taxes in our economy, contributing with their ideas and their labor and their innovation, that slows down economic growth. And it also means that we have fewer workers supporting an older population through things like Social Security or just through, you know, informal and formal care networks. Okay, so now that we've talked a little bit about the implications, let's go back to the potential reasons because, you know, you'd mentioned a snowstorm and, and yeah, whenever there's a huge snowstorm in the Northeast, for example, and then there's a blizzard, uh, you know, what emerges is a, a, a kind of spurt of births often because people are home. Um, why didn't that happen here? Was it that people were too frightened by the pandemic? Were they not motivated to be intimate with their partner? What was the reason? I think the biggest reasons have to do with uncertainty. So, you know, we have heard many times over the last year that we're, this is unprecedented, an unprecedented time, uncertain time. And, you know, for people to have kids, they have to feel that, you know, over the short term, the next nine to 18 months, that they're going to be in a good place. And they also have to feel optimistic about what's going to happen over the long term. And, you know, with this pandemic, there was a lot of economic uncertainty. A lot of people lost their jobs and didn't know when they would come back. And there was also just a lot of anxiety and not knowing what it would mean to have a baby in the middle of a pandemic. So those forces really pushed births down, even though we did have a lot of people stuck at home with their partners. For the general longer term trend, are people waiting 
longer. I mean, there's all sorts of factors, right? You want to be in the right place. We have economy, student debt, whatever it is, or just wanting fewer kids or waiting to meet someone. But are people waiting longer? Because that gives you less time to have, you know, two or three. Maybe it's just you have a kid if you wait until you're in your late 30s or or early 40s or whatever it is. We have definitely seen people waiting longer to get married and start their families. So I do think that's part of it. But, you know, if you look at that decline since 2007, most of that is among young women, women under age 30. So if you look just like at women 20 to 24, births have fallen 40% for that group since 2007 and by 68% for teenagers. When that first started happening, we thought it might be exactly what you suggest, that they'll just have those births later. But we now know that those women that were, you know, in their early, mid, late 20s, 10 years ago, they're now in their 30s, and we're still not seeing them have those births. So it doesn't seem that there's going to be a lot of catch-up. It's not just delay. It seems like these are really births that have been foregone by a lot of women. You know, I I know in uh, China for a while they had a, you know, a policy of just one child, and then that turned out to be a kind of a problem for some of the very same reasons we were just talking about economically, that they were ending up with not enough young people to support older people, so they kind of reversed that in much of China and have offered uh, uh, incentives in some case to uh, couples to have children. Do we need to do that in this country? Do we need to offer incentives to have more children so we don't have the economic consequences downstream that we were just talking about? Well, this is a big question, and it depends a lot on who you ask. Uh, but what I will say, the one important piece of this is that fertility is not the only way to grow our population. So an important piece of this story, too, is immigration. So if we're worried about a declining population generally, you know, we just had the census numbers come out last week that showed that our population growth is also slowing. You can also address that through immigration. So you could think about a suite of policies that might address that. Um, but if you think about trying to make it easier for families who might want kids but just don't feel like they can have them, they don't have the income, the resources, or they're uncertain about their future, there are a lot of policies we could think about. And among those are things like the child tax credit that has some bipartisan support right now that just gives more money to families uh, to say, spend this how you want to make it easier for you to have a kid, whether that's daycare, more education, somebody gets to stay home, uh, we'll offer you the support. Casey Buckles teaches studies economics, demographics at Notre Dame. Casey, thanks. Coming up after this short break, another pandemic shortage, and the timing couldn't be worse for all the moms out there. Mother's Day is coming up, and it might be harder to find flowers for your mom. The pandemic has led to a fresh flower shortage. So how hard is it to find that bouquet? Ben Powell, president of Mayish Wholesale Florist and spokesperson of the Wholesale Florist and Florist Supplier Association. So, Ben, why a shortage of flowers? Don't they just kind of grow? They do. They, they, they grow uh, until they stop growing. But uh, th- by the way, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, and happy Mother's Day in advance to all the mothers out there who hopefully will receive flowers. Um, it is, I've been in this industry for 30 years almost, and the last 14 months has been by far the craziest, most unpredictable um, of, of my career, as it has been for many others in different industries. And I will say that you know, last, uh, about 14 months ago in March of 2020, the, de- the demand 
globally for flowers just absolutely collapsed in a matter of days when the country shut down. Um, we went from 100 miles an hour down to zero, as did many uh, flower shops and wholesale distributors and importers and growers around the world, who, uh, which are primarily offshore. Uh, the flowers that we consume really mostly are grown offshore. Um, growers had to respond to that collapse in demand. And the uh, flower plants don't have on-off switches, uh, but they had to manage their own cost structure and their own production expectations. And they made a series of decisions that were quite rational at the time that uh, resulted in downstream shortages of flowers. Um, what they did not predict, and we didn't either, nobody really did, was that during this pandemic, you would also have an explosion of demand. Um, you know, People are at home uh, 24-7, nesting, staying safe. They want their flower, they want their homes to look nice. And flowers help people do that. Uh, people have been separated from family members and friends. And flowers are a way to express uh, feelings. And so people are sending flowers. Uh, and of course, people, uh, not everybody, uh, unfortunately, but many people have money in their pocket from not having gone on vacations or gone out to dinner um, or they got some stimulus money. So there's been an absolute explosion in demand at a time um, when uh, production has been relatively low. So when we look ahead to Mother's Day, still flowers to be had, maybe just not what you always used to get or once or the bouquet is going to be different. What, what are we talking about? Um, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I actually think that uh, for the most part, if people are listening, order their flowers uh, for Mother's Day now. Um, there should be mostly enough flowers to fill demand. I, I feel better about it today than I did a couple of weeks ago, but if you have a specific color of a specific variety in mind, um, you may not get exactly what you want. But I, I do believe most florists and supermarkets are gonna have flowers to, to, to fill demand. But I can tell you there are flowers that have completely sold out and flowers that I've never known to ever sell out in my industry experience. So has this flower shortage planted the seed for higher prices? Um, I think in some cases there, there have been higher prices. And the reality is costs have gone up. And one of the big uh, factors in this whole uh, situation I just described is logistical bottlenecks and planes. You know, the, the vast majority of the flowers sold in the U.S. are grown in South America. And cargo airlines have not been available because they've been redeployed elsewhere in the world where there's other uh, needs. And so, yes, freight costs, logistics costs of all kinds, even ground transportation, uh, once it gets to the U.S., those costs have gone up. And, uh, and so ultimately, some of those costs are, are, are passed on, but much of it has is, is also been absor absorbed uh, in the distribution channel as well. Ben Powell, president of uh, Mayish Wholesale Florist, spokesperson, Wholesale Florist, and a Florist Supplier Association. Ben, thanks. Go and uh, get your orders in. The pandemic has taken a toll on many people's finances, but it seems to have impacted younger adults far more than older adults. A new survey from CreditCards.com finds nearly half of parents have given their adult children money. It's a lot more than just a few bucks here and there. The survey found the average amount is $4,000. The adult children mostly don't waste the money or blow it on nonsense. Food and housing were the two biggest categories the money is used for. The survey found the vast majority of parents gave their adult children money that would otherwise have gone to their own 
personal finances. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.